Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Patricia April, the Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for Southern Maine Healthcare in Biddeford, Maine. Patsy started her career on the clinical side as a medical technologist, working her way up through leadership positions in the laboratory, then clinical operations. In this podcast, she talks about her experiences in a variety of organizations, including her time as CEO of Goodall Hospital during its merger with Southern Maine Healthcare. I think this podcast is especially useful for the insights Patsy offers on leadership and organizational culture, both in the context of leading through a merger, as well as how she leads for operational excellence today. Patsy also talks about her service as the American College of Healthcare Executives Regent for the State of Maine, and concludes with advice for early careerists. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at HealthLF. That's at H-E-A-L-T-H-L-F. Thanks for listening, and here is Patsy April. Welcome to The Forge, Patsy. Thank you. Glad to be here. So the University of New Hampshire is only about a 20-minute drive from Maine uh, or the Maine border. So I'm pleased to finally have a guest from the Maine healthcare community on the podcast. Although you are in Maine, it seems like your early career roots were actually in New Hampshire. That's correct, yeah. Um, You attended Colby Sawyer College and earned a bachelor's degree in medical technology. Why did you go to Colby Sawyer and how did you choose medical technology? Actually, Colby Sawyer, my best friend in high school, her mom had gone there. And so she took us for a, a ride to Colby Sawyer. And if, at the end of the day, I had applied to some private schools as well as public schools. And I actually got more financial aid from the private school. And that's how I came to um, have my education at Colby Sawyer. Okay. Why medical technology? Did you know you wanted to do something in healthcare when you went there? Or? Yeah, I knew I wanted to do healthcare, but I, at the time I had thought, well, I'm not sure I want to be a nurse. This was a course that was offered at Colby Sawyer, and so I moved ahead with it. Yeah. Okay. And what is, what is medical technology for folks? Who- uh, medical technology is laboratory science, so it's the study of the chemistry of the body. Okay. So you thought you wanted to do clinical science. Correct. Um, and, and after you graduated, what was your, what was your first job out of, out of college? My first job out of college was in the laboratory at um, Salem Hospital in Salem, Mass. Okay. And when I worked there, I was a generalist in all areas of the laboratory. So okay. I did blood bank, hematology, chemistry, microbiology, and it was a fantastic job. I loved it. All right. When did you make the transition into leadership? So when did you move up from, did you stay as a technician for a while? And when did I you did. I was, I worked in the laboratory for 19 years. Okay. And... At, at Salem? No, I had moved at that point okay. to New Hampshire, and I was working at the Elliott Hospital. Okay. And again, I was a generalist. And then there was a position open in the laboratory as a supervisor of hematology. And I applied for the position, and I got it. And then after having that position for a while, then I moved up to the ranks of laboratory manager and then laboratory director. So that kind of was my progression in the laboratory. And this is all at the Elliott? Yes, it was. Okay. Did you have any mentors that were kind of encouraging you to move along in that, in in the laboratory realm and kind of moving up as a leader? Yep. When I was in the laboratory, there was a gentleman there who had been the director of the laboratory at the Elliott Hospital for over 30 years. And once I got the supervisor position, he couldn't have been any more supportive of me um, as an emerging leader. He he, um, mentored me um, primarily in terms of finances as it related to the laboratory and what upper management would be looking for in, tra- in terms of reports and uh, the up and downs of the reports as well as the profit and loss statement. So he was a great mentor to me, very, very supportive. 
it looks like in 2005, mm -hmm. you moved on to be the executive director of clinical services at Catholic Medical Center. I did. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that position and, and how did that come about? All right. So um, this was during the time when the two hospitals in the city of Manchester merged together. Okay. And so um, the Elliott Hospital and Catholic Medical Center merged together. And after three years, they actually demerged. And when they demerged, there was actually two positions. One was the director of laboratory services at the Elliott Hospital that I was fortunate enough to have been offered the position. But at the same time, at Catholic Medical Center, they came to me and said, I'm going to offer you some progressive leadership here. And if you stay with us, I will make you the executive director of clinical services. So not only will you oversee the laboratory, but we'll give you other areas. And to me, that was such a great opportunity that I decided to move to Catholic Medical Center and take that position. Oh, neat. What were you responsible for as the executive director of clinical services? I oversaw several of the outpatient areas, including, of course, the laboratory, but also the pharmacy, the wound center, the eye center, clinical nutrition, food services, and later I also oversaw the start of a new program, which was the gastric bypass program. Okay. I think I misspoke. You actually took that job in, two in, in 2002. That's correct. And mm -hmm. then you left in 2005 to right. go to Goodall. So the position you took at Goodall was vice president of operations? That's correct. Tell us a little bit about that position. Sure. Well, well, actually, first, tell us how, what was Goodall Hospital? How big was it? Okay. Know, beds, employees? Yeah, yeah. Goodall Hospital had a little over 900 employees. I think it was 940 employees. It was a small hospital in terms of inpatient. Its average daily census was only about 23, 25 at the time. It had a very good size outpatient service line. And during the years that I was there, it actually grew and moved into other, other geographic areas. So Goodall, and Goodall is in Sanford, Maine. So you left yes. New Hampshire, left Man the Manchester area, moved uh, east and, right. and north up to, right. up to Maine. Yeah. Uh, now, as vice president of operations, tell us a little bit about that job. What was, what was that? Sure. Like? So that job was actually in large part an expansion of what I was doing at Catholic Medical Center. So oversaw a lot of the same departments, but then I also had additional new ones. So I oversaw the pharmacy, the laboratory, but then I also had the health information department, the admissions department, um, some of the physician practices. I also had human resources, and as that, that was a wonderful learning opportunity for me because not only was I able to help with all of what you think of in terms of human resources, which is the, you know, the hiring and the disciplining and the orientation, but also I learned an awful lot about benefits and compensation. Okay. So that was a great learning opportunity for me. I actually went on to actually also be the compliance officer okay. for the organization. And what is that? Compliance officer, in, in essence, is a mandated position by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, and they're essentially looking for every organization that accepts funding from the government to make sure that all of their billing practices are handled in an ethical manner. How did you fit in, how did your position as Vice President of Operations, how did you fit into the overall leadership structure. So you're pretty close to the top at that point. Sure. So yeah. Who did you report to and kind of So I reported in that role I reported directly to the CEO. Okay. And below the CEO there were a few other uh, vice presidents. So there was a vice president of elder care services, there was the chief financial officer, and then there was also the chief nursing officer okay. as well as myself. So okay. that's again we were we were pretty much all at the same level. Um, reporting directly to the CEO, but having different lines of responsibility. Okay. Goodall was, was kind of struggling at the time when you yeah. arrived. Yeah. You, uh, on several fronts, and, mm -hmm. and one of those was the non-compliance issue that you, sure. or compliance issue that you, you yeah. talked about. Yeah. How did you address the, that issue and, and the other issues that were going on at the time as, as, a, as a senior leader? 
Well, what I've come to learn is that if you have the proper structure in place below you with people that are competent to do the, the jobs that are required, as well as simply being forthright and saying, this is what I need from you. What I've found is more often than not, if you just tell other leaders what is expected of them, they're going to do it. And so after assessing, for instance, some of the, um, during the Joint Commission surveys, they had found some deficiencies. So again, going out, looking for leaders that are competent in particular areas, putting them in place, and then being very specific. Here's the Joint Commission standards for this particular area. I need you to make sure that every single one of these are met, not only met, but you know, go above and beyond the required standards. Yeah. And so... Had they failed, had Goodall failed its joint commission? It didn't fail joint commission, okay. but it did have... Um, Seri- significant it findings? It had some, some findings, correct. Okay. okay. Yep. And that was prior to the CEO coming on board. When she came on board, she, you know, okay. um, began to put some, some great uh, leaders as well as processes in place. Okay. Yeah. We also oversaw four construction projects uh, mm. during your tenure as the VP of operations. Did. Was this a new skill set for you? Had you done that before? I had never done that before. So what, what did you do and, and what was that experience like? All right. So again, we began to expand into ge- different geographic areas such as Waterboro, Maine and Kennebunk, Maine. Okay. And in order to grow, we needed to have a facility that housed all the services that we were going to offer in those communities. Okay. So again, we were fortunate to have somebody that came to work for us that had a background in construction management. He reported directly to me, and we began the process of saying, working with an architect, working with um, engineers that helped us to work through the size of the building, what we would have in the new building, and then talking to us from an operational perspective to to kind of pose questions to us to say, well, talk to me about how you work. Where do you register your patients? How many of those patients are pre-registered? Um, how many booths do you need for registration? How, you know, and then they would help us say, okay, you, you have laboratory draws that you do every morning. That's your heavy time during the morning because people are fasting. How many draw stations do you need? So as they would pose these questions, we began to develop the model of the facility that we wanted to build. And so it was form around function, and it was a fabulous song. I really enjoyed it because I got to not only work through the process of developing a new building, but then I got into the design aspect, which was what colors are you going (laughs) to choose, what Uh are the chairs going to look like, Uh and to me... Quite frankly, that was a lot of fun, so I enjoyed that a lot. Sure. Yeah. Well, this is a good example of the kind of different skill set that's required, I think, as you move up, right? So you started out in, in the lab. You were, yeah. very, you were trained as a, yeah. as, a, as a medical technologist and right. very knowledgeable about that field. And so, yeah. But as you moved up, you're yeah. moving into overseeing stuff that you aren't a expert in. Exactly. What was yeah. that experience like as you kind of, and so this construction thing is, a, is you know, yet another yeah. example. What yeah. was, uh, I think a lot of managers, I mean, that's a growing process yeah. for a lot of managers. What was yeah. that like for you to kind of, as you moved out of the areas where, you know, out of the laboratory and into kind of yeah. bigger picture management? Yeah. How did your management style, how did your leadership style change? Well, in large part, I had to realize that, it, particularly in the first one and two projects, that I didn't have the background to, to feel confident that everything I was doing was right. So my leadership definitely had to, to change in that I had to have faith in the person who reported to me. I also needed to make sure that I was, you know, following up and asking some questions that might that might seem naive to, you know, perhaps to some people, but you had to, you know, you had to be humble and just get out there and ask those questions because yeah. the folks who who knew how to do building projects they, all they wanted to do was have a completed project that was done well. So they were leading us all along the way, but I had to have faith in the, in the process and the person who was reporting to me that I wasn't leaving anything out. <laughs> a little nerve-wracking, but yeah. nonetheless a positive uh, learning experience all the way around. And, and, but this would be true, I assume, for things like, I mean, you 
went into overseeing it. You had the pharmacy reporting yeah, to you and all this. Yeah. So same, same kind of approach? Yeah. Yes and no. The difference, okay. what I found in some of the clinical areas, was that I had such an intense background about process in the laboratory. Just as an example, okay. you know, the physician would go in and order a lab test. The lab test gets put into the computer, and then the phlebotomist goes, draws the blood, and then the blood comes back to the laboratory and you run the analysis on it, and now you report it back. When I got to the pharmacy, and the same with the respiratory and other departments like that, I learned that, okay, well, the doc isn't necessarily ordering a blood test, but he is ordering a medication. That medication order has to be put into the computer. It needs to get down to the pharmacy. Now the pharmacist is pulling that medication and then getting that back to the floor. So there were so many similar processes that, that I could easily you know, relate to and help along versus construction was totally new and different. Okay. Totally new and different. Have you yeah. found that to be true for other departments that you've picked up? So some would have would lend themselves to the kind of process yeah. uh, management that you had learned from yeah. you know from right from college. Right. Some probably don't lend themselves right. quite that way. Yeah. Yeah. But health information. Okay. Yeah, construction, but even something like health information management, mm -hmm. which is medical records. Right. You know, really from a from the background that I had you really don't go into the medical record at all. You really don't have much of a need to. And so understanding those processes and, and from a regulatory perspective, what should be in the medical record, which shouldn't be liability issues, is it's very different, a lot to learn. But the same leadership experiences in terms of making sure you have the right person in place yeah. And then um, having faith in that they're going to work with you and fulfill all of the regulatory requirements that are sure, needed. Sure. Yeah. How do you know you when you have the right person in place, and how do you know you don't? Oh boy. Because you're let's let's say yeah. information management. Yeah. You walk in. Yeah. Early on, you have experience yeah. now. And you probably have a better sense. But right. Early yeah. on, what yeah. were you? How are you trying to figure out? Yeah. Okay, my supervisor of. Yeah. Of, and I'm not saying that that person was or was yeah. not, but just how do yeah. you know? You yeah. Actually, you know from a few different areas. The first place you know is when you have your regulatory um, reviews. So okay. the Joint Commission sure. comes in. If there's big warning signs, they're going to find that mm -hmm. during their inspection, mm -hmm. and it's going to come out in their report. So that's, mm -hmm. that's one area that is kind of like a slam dunk. Sure. Okay, there's some red flags there. Well, those are experts coming in and, exactly. and looking at your area. Exactly. Right. The other area is that you get hints from sometimes hints, sometimes just overt, I need to talk to you from staff members or other leaders who feel like, for instance, perhaps somebody needs to meet with the leader of HIM and they're just not getting back to them. Well, no matter who you are, if you're a leader, you and for an organization, you're expected to work well with others, right? And they generally need you, they need their help that other person's help in getting the job done. And so you hear it either from another leader or from the staff. And the magnitude and the, um, um, the volume of concerns that are voiced are the two key, two key okay. things so that trigger you to take action. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So talking about growth, yeah. your, uh, Goodall was in a growth mode, it, se yes. it sounds like. Mm -hmm. I, and yet, in, I guess, around 2010 or so, yeah. you started looking at, uh, Goodall started yes. looking at a merger talks. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, why, why the, it's, that seems counterintuitive to me. Yeah. Why, why would they be growing and then at the same time thinking, eh, you know, maybe we should merge? Yeah, because a couple of things happen. First of all, uh, reimbursement change. So I'll just give the example of orthopedic surgery. So. The reimbursement for orthopedic surgery, again, just as an example, what, what the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid were paying us went down, okay? okay? Mm -hmm. So you have a decrease in reimbursement. At the same time, we had a huge increase in bad debt and charity care. Okay. So you have this triple effect of, you know, uh, <laughs> bad debt, charity care, and then decreased reimbursement. That's, that's probably the biggest thing. But the other thing that was concerning for Sanford was that we were in a building that was aging. Okay. It was over 85 years old, and it was so important that we retain services in Sanford 
the local economy needed it, the patients in the area needed it, and yet looking forward we knew that reimbursement was going down, charity care going up, and we were in a designation that we, sh we should have been what's referred to as a critical access hospital okay. because of our average daily census. Mm -hmm. If we had that designation, we would have had about five to six million dollars more in reimbursement per year, and it would have totally changed our financial profit and loss statement. We were too close to the next closest hospital. We ah. were denied that designation. Okay. And so with all the other competing forces, we said, well, we know we need to retain services here. Mm -hmm. Let's work with Maine Health. Um, it's in our geographic service area. It has a phenomenal reputation. And uh, what can we do to maintain the jobs that are in this community? Okay. And that's why we worked okay. with can you, Maine can, Health. Can we back up just a second and talk yeah. about what is a critical access hospital? And I've had a couple of other yeah. folks on, but just folks yeah. who haven't listened to those other podcasts, if you could just yeah. very briefly explain yeah. what is that and what does that what does that designation do? You mentioned yeah. you've gotten better reimbursements. How, how yeah. does that work? Critical Access Hospital is defined as a hospital that has an average daily census of less than 26 and is located greater than 25 miles from the next closest hospital. As that, if, if you fulfill both of those, then you can request a designation from the government as a critical access hospital. And as such, um, you get increased reimbursement from the government for services rendered. And that's where the five or six million additional. Exactly. And that would have made the difference to keep you afloat Night as, and a, day. as a hospital. Night and day. What about the capital improvement that you would have had to have done? You yep. Think? Would, um, that, would it have been enough? You know what, it wouldn't have been enough in the short term, but in the long term, you know, if we could have waited out a few, several years, yeah. then we would have been able to have a, you know, uh, we'd be able to add to our capital funds. We certainly had a good endowment, so, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, in, in 2011, mm -hmm. the CEO of the hospital left, yeah. and you were promoted to CEO by the board. Correct, um, yeah. And in a newspaper article that I read from the time, it said that you have said your primary focus would be to continue the merger discussions with mm -hmm. Maine Health. So you, I'm guessing you kind of probably knew that the CEO title was probably a, not a permanent right. thing, I assume. it's true. Um, yep, yep. So how did your focus change when you became CEO? So how did, how did your day-to-day -day responsibilities change and, and how did what you thought about on a daily basis change? Um, again, I did know that um, I would be in the merger process for about a two-year period of time. And the two hospitals that were merging, we had a parent organization, Maine Health, and the two organizations were Southern Maine Health, excuse me, Southern Maine Medical Center okay. in Biddeford and Goodall Hospital in Sanford, Maine. Okay. The CEO at Southern Maine Medical Center had been the CEO had been in the organization for over 35 years, oh, wow. and the CEO for over 25 years. Okay. He was extremely respectful, extremely supportive, and it just made perfect sense that as a merged organization, he would be the CEO. So my job in the interim role was to bring the merger forward, do everything in my power to make sure it came in a efficient, smooth manner, and during that two-year period of time, the number of community forums that happened throughout the Sanford Springvale area was just phenomenal. So my role changed greatly in terms of communication and getting out and talking to the community. I also began to have many staff forums. So every few months I would have forums with the, a content, you know, one set of content that it was about an hour long, but I'd have about 11 of the same forums in three days, okay. over and over and over again with the same message. Okay. And uh, communication is so key. In order for it to go smoothly, yeah. for in order for any merger to go smoothly, you have to communicate and communicate often and well. And I think I did that. That was. <laughs> 
primary goal and, yeah. and actually so went very So your well. focus really shifted from an internal operations focus to a external or mer exactly. communications, it, merger. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Learn, it must have been a big learning process. What, was, what, were, the, what were the biggest things you learned in that in, in, in that. I think that the thing time, that I, I learned the most is that when you are, even though you, I'm going through a merger and I know what the end state will be, as the CEO for that two-year period of time, the number of sleepless, sleepless nights was phenomenal. Yeah. Because, you know, as I mentioned a few times during this discussion, keeping services, healthcare services in Sanford for the community was key and making sure that it was done and done well, really as a CEO, you know, is on your shoulders. Right. And um, it's such an honor and such a privilege, but unless you take, pay very close attention, it could go amiss. And so I would say what surprised me the most was the number of sleepless nights. <laughs> yeah. So how far away is Sanford from, we're in Biddeford today. Yes. How far is Sanford from here? Um, it's about 24 miles. Now is there, is there a, in, is there inpatient capacity? You, you were saying, yeah. uh, you were saying you wanted to keep services in Sanford. Right, right. So what services were you, what services did you decide as an organization would remain there? It, okay. Well, what we actually, I'm going to answer it a little bit differently. We, we stopped inpatient services in Sanford. Okay. We had the capacity here in Biddeford, but we actually retained just about everything else. Okay. So we have all of the um, diagnostic imaging, the MRI, CT, a full-service emergency department. We have specialty practices such as OB, uh, orthopedics. Uh, we have a pain management center. We do colonoscopies out there, ambulatory surgery. We have a pain management center. So we actually pretty so, much do so it's everything robust. right that we okay. were doing before rehab services, other than inpatient. Okay. Yeah. So OB services would be outpatient, well baby kind of stuff. Exactly. But deliveries are done here. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Can you talk a bit about your relationship with the board? Sure. And, and what, what is, what does a board do for yeah. a hospital? Yeah. Um, and then this must have been kind of a unique time to be mm -hmm. a member of the board as yeah. you as they were working through these, as you were working right. with them through that yeah. process. So tell tell us a little bit about what does the board do normally, and kind yeah. of what was it like yeah. in this very kind of crucial time for the yeah. organization? Yeah. Well, the board of trustees is essentially the oversight um, of the organization. We have 20 members of our board of trustees. Uh, we are made up of 40% physicians and the rest are lay people. Okay. And they oversee all of the, they have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that we're handling our dollars appropriately. They oversee capital expenditures, um, but most importantly, they oversee the quality of care of the organization. Okay. Is that today you're talking about or when you were at Sanford? Both. Okay. Yeah. How did so there was a board, there would have been separate boards at that at that time? Sure. So we actually we went through a very unique process in that we each had a board of trustees of about twenty members each, and we decided that we wanted to have one board of trustees. No, let me let me state that differently. That we wanted to have we each would cont during until we merged. We would have separate boards of trustees. We would maintain that, but we would have the same board of trustees members. Okay. Okay, so what we did was we each organization went out to its board of trustees and said, okay, we are going to have a uh, holding company, and that holding company will be made up of 20 trustees. Those same 20 trustees will be the trustees of Southern Maine Medical Center, and the trustees of Goodall Hospital. We'll have three separate sets of minutes. And so we went out to the board and said, how, who would like to stay and who would like to move on? And actually, we were very fortunate just through self-selection, and we wanted it to be equal representation, which was very different because Southern Maine Medical Center was about double the size okay. of Goodall. Okay. But we decided, through the guidance of Maine Health, that to have it be most functional 
that we should have equal representation. So we took 10 members from the Goodall Board and 10 members from the Southern Maine Medical Center Board to make a new 20-member Board of Trustees. And how is the board organized? What kind of, are there committees or sure. functions that in either individual members of the board or or groups, uh, subgroups were yeah. responsible for? Yep. Yeah, so the Board of Trustees, each Board of each trustee is requested to be on at least one committee. So we have a Board of Trustees meeting. They meet once a month, but we also have committee meetings. We have a finance committee meeting, oversees obviously all of the finances as it relates to the organization. We have a governance committee that looks at our governance structure and our bylaws. And then we have a compensation committee um, that oversees the compensation of the executives. And then lastly, we have a quality committee of the board that looks at all of our quality scores, all of our quality indicators, and discusses improvements for quality. Okay. So during the merger process, what were they doing? What, was the, what were the board members doing in terms of, kind of what kind of decisions were brought to the board? What kind of decisions were kind of left to the, the, the respective CEOs? I might be reaching back a bit. But. Well, no, during the merger process, the mm -hmm. board really had its, the primary responsibility at the time was due diligence. Okay. So in other words, if the two um, entities were going to merge together, um, they wanted to make sure that the quality scores were such that each other would not damage each other. And in fact, we each had great quality scores, so that one was pretty easy yeah. to get past. Needed to understand the financial challenges of each organization and whatever those challenges were to request a plan to be put in place to overcome those challenges. And, and then from a governance perspective, the governance committee had some great work to do in terms of, again, looking at our looking at our organization bylaws and updating them for this new Southern Maine healthcare that was being formed. Okay. Uh. As the leader on the Goodall side, yeah. you know, what were the main concerns of the people from Goodall, for the, the staff, yeah. uh, kind of going into it? How did you, you said you had a lot of, of meetings with them. What, what were they, you know, what were their concerns and kind of how did you work with that? Oh, the primary concern was that, am I going to have a job? Sure, that's it. Am I going to have a job? That was by far the number one question. The number two question was, if I'm going to have a job, is it the same job, and what site will it be at? Some of the decisions that needed to be made took time and a lot of thought, and so the struggle was not being able to answer the questions. They were, and it wasn't for lack of not wanting to answer it, but the answers weren't there yet. And so we had to work through thoughtful processes. I have to say that overall though, we were very fortunate because very, very few jobs were lost. Most people self-selected, for instance, director of rehab, director of pharmacy. There were several positions that people said, well, there's two of us, we only need one, I'll go look for a job elsewhere. Wow. And it, I mean, that just happened over and over again. And so we, like I say, we really, our goal was to have no layoffs. And so, you know, because it was a two-year process, mm -hmm. it worked out that we were actually able to for do that. To exactly. See where the redundancies were exactly. themselves. Exactly, and yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, what about culture? Both of you, it sounds like both of the organizations were well, you know, were mm -hmm. performing well. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like it was there was a problem at right. either place. Exactly. But every organization is different. Yeah. Even even high, two high performing organizations exactly. are going to have different cultures. What was right. it like to try to bring together the staff from those different organizations with different yeah. cultures? What was what yeah. was that about? What was that like? I have to say that because we're now a melded organization and culture takes at least three to five years to get there, we've only been merged for two years. And so um, the changing culture is evolving. And the culture for Southern Maine Healthcare, our tagline is excellence always. Everything we do, excellence always. And so to us, to have high quality scores is really important. 
we want to have high patient safety, all of that. And so we do very well in those areas, but we want to we wanna do better and exceed. And okay. so, again, this is a culture that's evolving. And I think it was difficult for both sides, yeah. really. It's just because, like you say, culture is so important and... One was smaller, one was bigger, and again, so maybe it's, more intimacy in the Sanford. Oh, you could at, know everybody, wrap your exact, arms around a little more. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. now, it's a little bigger. It's, or, or exactly. Those folks were having to come join a, a larger organization exactly. where maybe not as intimate. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, honestly, from the other than the inpatient piece, a lot has really stayed as is in the Sanford campus. Oh, I see. Okay. You know, so, so, so the the culture is still there. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Following the merger, you were mm-hmm. appointed as the senior vice president and chief operating officer for mm-hmm. Southern Maine Healthcare, the position that you currently hold. Mm-hmm. Let me ask this now. What is the relationship between Southern Maine Healthcare and Maine Health? Mm-hmm. How does being part of Maine Health help Southern Maine Healthcare? Uh, Maine Health is our parent organization. So Maine Health actually has several hospitals below it. Maine Medical Center is one, Penn Bay, uh, Lincoln Healthcare. So there's several in, and we're another one of the hospitals. What Maine Health does for us is that they provide us depth in terms of working with the big payers such as Anthem, Cigna. Uh, they can go out to the payers and say, okay, I wanna work on reimbursement and uh, you know, have all these hospitals underneath us. And so they essentially afford us buying power that we didn't have in the past. They also have a slate of legal counsel and being able to tap into attorneys, quite frankly, on a daily basis, some that specialize in compliance, others that specialize in, in human resources, some in pension, that you can reach out to these different attorneys is, is a benefit that, quite frankly, we didn't have in the past. Though one thing that's different as now having a parent organization is that Maine Health has its own board of trustees. And so now, we once our board approves, whether it be big financial purchases, let's say we're going to build a new, a new medical office building, the Board of Trustees at Maine Health now has to approve that also. So we do have another layer, and from a timing perspective, it takes a little bit longer, but again, we have the depth and breadth of Maine Health, which is a huge benefit overall. Okay. One more question about the board. I, I, I forgot to ask it earlier when you mentioned 40% of the membership of the board yes. are physicians. Yes. And then the rest are lay mm-hmm. members of the community. Yes. Why the high level of high concentration of physician members. Yeah. Again, it's a governance philosophy here at Southern Maine Healthcare. You generally don't see that percentage mm-hmm. of physicians on a board of trustees. The reason why we have that as part of our culture is that as we go to the board and we talk about and request such things such as capital expenditures for different equipment that we might need to purchase, Physicians have a very keen eye on what should and should not be purchased, and, and they help prioritize. And so they're very helpful in that regard. But I would say the number one reason to have that percentage of providers on the board is because of their in-depth knowledge on quality and qualitative care. And so again, as we strive for excellence always, what physicians can bring to the Board of Trustees is just phenomenal. Okay, great. Southern Maine Healthcare has 20 locations in six cities, is that Mm -hmm. correct? That's correct. Where are kind of, what would you consider your flagship facilities? And and then kind of, what are all the other locations and what's going on kind of generally? um, so Biddeford and Sanford are clearly the two flagship cities that we're in. But we also have four. We're located in four different buildings in Kennebunk. Okay. And we're also in a few different buildings in Saco. So I would say those are our primary buildings that we're in in geographic regions. You have elder care? We do. What is that? Okay, elder care. We actually have a 74-bed nursing home in Sanford, and those are duly licensed for skilled beds and nursing home beds. 
Above and beyond that, in Sanford, we also have a 14-bed residential care facility, and we also have a 24-bed dementia care facility. And then off-site, off of the hospital campus, we also have another 32-bed um, residential care facility. So we actually have quite a few elder care beds. In, they're all in Sanford, and you know, when we go out to the community in Sanford, what we hear over and over again is, you're gonna retain our elder care, right? The aging community wants to be assured that their loved ones will have a place to go locally as they age. Okay. And so it's, it's, you know, it's a great service line to have, and it's a whole specialty all in itself. Right. I mean, it, it is. It's a, it, it, it literally is a different licensure. Yeah. And, and whole separate care model, exactly. So how does that fit into... It's a different care model. Yeah. How, why should it be part of... A acute care system. Sure. Well, elder care, um, when we think of health care in terms of transitions of care, uh, you know, we are paying much closer attention to the transition, for instance, of our patient from the emergency room to our outpatient physician office. We want to make sure that that transition happens well and it doesn't fall through the cracks. What we find from an elder care perspective is that as a patient ages and they might need to be seen in an acute care facility, many elder care need to transition to an elder care facility. So again, it's just another means for transitioning the patient to the most appropriate level of care. We also have patients that are having hip and knee surgeries and need to have skills care afterwards. So to have skilled care as part of our model, again, provides us a place for our patients that are being discharged from in inpatient care, transitioning to a skilled level care. Okay. So, so following the merger, mm -hmm. you again became the Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for Southern Maine Healthcare. How is that position different than your previous position prior to becoming uh, CEO at Goodall? Is it roughly the same responsibilities, or do you have a broader scope? I, the scope is broader in terms of geographic region, okay. which actually is a challenge. Because, as mentioned, we're in so many different geographic regions, you know, staff and the community want to know who you are when you're in senior leadership. They want to be able to know your face, and they want to be able to know that you're actively involved in the community. So just having the geographic scope definitely provides a challenge so that, you know, you need to ask yourself, where do I need to be today and where do I need to be visible? And so, to me, that's the greatest challenge I have in this position. How important is it to be visible and what do you mean by that? Well, from an employee engagement perspective, so from an employee perspective, it's extremely important to be visible. Improved engagement scores for employees, so employee engagement, improved scores show that employees will stay with the organization longer. And turnover is such a big issue for organizations that being visible is one way to help ensure that our employees will be here for the long term. So to me, it's extremely important. One of the things that you've implemented since coming on board mm -hmm. as the COO mm -hmm. is a operational excellence program mm -hmm. throughout the Southern Maine healthcare system. What is this program? All right, so operational excellence is really our way of managing, it's a new way of managing the organization. It's referred to as lean daily management. Okay. And it starts the day where we come into a huddle and we look at key performance indicators every day. We, we get to, there's about 30 people that come into a room and we essentially look at what's today's census What's the number of patients that we anticipate discharging? What was our ED volume yesterday? How many patients do we have as boarders, which means that they are looking for placement elsewhere? Okay. And because so maybe psych or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. We've how many talked about that a few times. Yeah. So how many are psych patients? How many are not psych patients? But, but this yeah, is not the care. right right. This is okay. not the right level of care for them, yeah. and they need to be transitioned elsewhere. Um, so we start the day that way, and then we go on to what we refer to as a uh, daily gamble walk, which is we go to the different units, and we essentially 
uh, meet up with staff who present key performance indicators to us. Is this all 30 members of this team or just a subset? We actually have nine walks a day okay. and we have two leaders per day going to each one of those walks. Okay. And so we visit every department of the hospital every single day. Okay. But it's, you split out. We it's, split it's not up. It's whole... two people per walk, and okay. there's about 12 walks. Wow. Okay. 12 places we stop Do you on alternate? each walk. Yeah, we actually sign up for this, and leadership, uh, the vice presidents have to do at least two walks a week. Okay. Our managers have to do at least three walks a month, and our directors have to do at least four walks a month. Oh. So we sign up for these walks, okay. and we do them every single day. So it's not you you doing visiting a particular specific area every time. Right. It's, it's different senior leaders exactly. visiting different places. Right. So you're always getting different eyes. Exactly. So I might be, for instance, today I did a walk in Biddeford. Tomorrow I might do a walk in Kennebunk. The next day I might do a walk in Saco. So okay. I make sure that I do different walks so I have that visibility and get around. Okay. Right. What's the benefit of doing this? The benefit of doing this is one, visibility. But far beyond that, the benefit is that when we visit the different units, staff members come up with what are referred to as key performance indicators. And so they are monitoring issues in their departments that they feel as staff members they can improve upon. So for instance, how quiet is the floor for the patient? Can the patient sleep at night? And they actually might ask the patients, go in and say, was it quiet enough for you? And then they report on that the next day to us. One unit um, looked at, it was an outpatient unit, and they looked at the number of handicap spots that were available for their patients to park, because these were cardiac patients. And what they were learning was that the patients, there wasn't enough handicap spots, and they had to walk a, a long way. And so this was an issue for that particular unit. Another unit looked at the number of no-show patients and said to themselves, well, we have an awful high no-show rate. Why? And again, now the other patients can't take that time because it's blocked for this person who didn't show up. And so as they begin to monitor themselves, they begin to drill down and put new processes in place to overcome the shortcomings. Okay. So you said these are measures that they choose? The staff chooses them themselves. Okay. Yep. So you've, you've provided them some sort of training to kind of come up with these Yeah, things? it's a three-day training okay. um, just for two staff members on a particular unit. They go out in real time and go back to their unit and train everybody else. And then within, um, it's a three-day training. And within, on the fourth day, we start right in. And wow. it took us a year and a half to do all of the departments, but they're all done. And we've been doing it for a year and a half now, and it's worked very, very well. That's neat. Yeah. Uh, you, you called it a lean, lean daily management right. and a lean, excuse me, and a daily gemba walk. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, what about Six Sigma sort of stuff? Yeah. Like, so you may, I know you're a lab, you've got a lab background, yeah. so that, yeah. that's got to appeal to yeah. Yeah. Your, your kind this of This is all part training. of the same, if you will, uh, school of thought. Okay. And so, um, you know, this is what we have implemented, but mm. we're actually using a theta care model of, okay. of, of, of of how you manage daily. Okay. Yeah. What is what is ThetaCare? Oh, ThetaCare is an organization that um, is uh, well known for its uh, uh, lean daily management tools, and they actually um, train organizations throughout the United States to do this. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's shift gears now and talk mm. specifically about leadership. Mm -hmm. How would you define your leadership philosophy? My leadership philosophy is to be a mentor and to be an educator and to be a communicator. Because again, I, you know, I had mentioned earlier that what I've found through my career is that if you just tell staff or leaders what is expected of them, they want to do the right thing. So if you can communicate with them, educate them, and then mentor them all along the way, you have a very successful leader at the end of the day. So okay. that's, my, that's my leadership philosophy. All right. What are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader, and how do you aspire to those yourself? I believe in leading by example. 
and also of giving yourself wholeheartedly to your work while you're at work. Okay. But there has to be has to be some work life balance okay. because if there isn't, you can crash and burn. In my earlier years, I used to give of myself at work and at home to work, and I've it. You know, I think a lot of leaders learn that lesson the hard way. And with time, I've learned while I'm here, I'm going to give 150 percent, but I have to have some balance in order to be able to come back the next day. <laughs> okay. Well, I was going to ask you about work-life balance, so yeah. let me let me ask you that uh, now. You know, I, I I've been reading Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, and and um, yeah. you know. Uh, health management policy, the department I teach in, about 80% of our, our students are, are young women. Mm. Uh, and obviously one of, the, one of the issues that Sandberg raises is this issue of work-life balance. Mm. So you're married, you have kids, mm-hmm. and you've worked your way up into senior management. Yeah. Um, how did you make all that work? Um, and you're saying some of it was you had to learn to do that. But. Yeah, exactly. But I would say that I'm very fortunate in that I have a very supportive environment at home. Okay. And so, you know, there are times when you have to work a lot of hours, but it's also not unusual to have to work a lot of evenings. And so I'm someone who's at work at 6.30 in the morning, and once or twice a week it's not unusual not to get home till 9 or 10 at night. And my husband has always, and my kids at the time, they're older now, but were always supportive of me. Rah, rah, mom, you know? That's awesome. <laughs> so Good. I've been fortunate in that manner. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can you give an example of a difficult leadership lesson that you had to learn maybe the hard way? Um, I would say a leadership lesson that I've learned, and I have to say it's been more than once, and that is when you realize and recognize that there is somebody in a position that isn't doing the job that they should be doing, if you leave them in that position too long, not only do you do a disservice to that individual, but at that same time you're doing a disservice to the organization. And so I, as an individual, always want to give, I want to mentor and educate and help that, whatever person it is that isn't working out, I want to help them along to get there. Uh, My lesson learned has been that there have been times, and it's been more than once when I've left somebody in the position too long, I see. which, which you know, you don't want to cut it off too soon, right. but That's not keeping fair. it on too long is, is, is not, not doing yeah. anybody any good. Okay. What do you look for when hiring leaders? So you're a leader of leaders. Mm. Probably the people that you are most often hiring are, yeah. are going to be managers and supervisors. Yeah. You're, not, you're not hiring a lot of frontline people, most likely. Yeah. yeah. So what are you looking for when you're hiring leaders and evaluating them? Yeah, I, well, I've come to definitely use behavior-based interviewing as a um, skill when, when interviewing others. When I do that, you know, you ask questions. Uh, this one probably not as much now, but, you know, what do you want to be doing in five years from now? And it's amazing what some people will do to answer that question. Oh, well, I want to move away or, you know, <laughs> I think I'm going to change careers. And, and so, again, an easy lesson to learn is just ask that question because people will be very truthful with you and that's probably not the person that you want to hire. Uh-huh. But above and beyond that, really looking for fit in terms of, you know, personality, leadership style. You know, when you ask behavior-based questions about um, somebody's personality in terms of, you know, what do you look like when you're angry? You know, if somebody comes outright and says to me, well, you know, I do have a history of kind of throwing things and um, I'm maybe slamming my hand, you know, well, oh, oh, great. You know, I'm glad that person disclosed that, but that says to me, that's probably not the individual that I need in my organization. Okay. So. Okay. <laughs> and what about evaluating leaders? So you're, you're, you've got your team. Mm-hmm. What, are you, what are you looking for, you know, to say, you're doing a good job. Clearly, it would be technical competence, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Well, what are important things that they are doing on a day-to-day basis that you're looking for? I'm looking for a leader to be forthright in their challenges and in their ability to get a job done. So in other words, 
you know, if I'm giving somebody a task, I want the task to be done and done in a timely manner. And what I have found a few times is that for one reason or another, that leader might come back to me and say, oh, I'm going to get that done tomorrow. I want somebody to be really forthright and say to me, I can't get that done tomorrow. In fact, I need a week to get this done. Okay, you know, that's, that's not an issue. And if it is, then I'd let that person know. But I would say um, when evaluating somebody, I now look for, is that person being forthright with me in their own ability and in their communication style with me? Um, because it's a challenge in the role that I'm in. You know, my boss, the CEO, is oftentimes looking for some really tight timelines. And if I'm asking somebody um, and they're not being forthright with me, then it's quite the challenge for me <laughs> to be able to get that job done. So um, to me, that's one of the number one significant challenges that I face when um, talking to a leader. Any special challenges when evaluating clinical leaders? Um, not, not particularly, because again, we have the tools of the Joint Commission or whatever particular accrediting organization, and almost every clinical area has a medical director okay. um, that oversees it clinically. And so again, from a clinical perspective, there's always someone else that's going to either buffer or help get us to where we need to be clinically. Okay. We've talked a little bit about organizational culture when we were talking about the merger, but mm -hmm. why do you think it's important? And how do you go about trying to shape organizational culture? And what aspects of organizational culture are particularly important to you? Oh, you know, again, our tagline is excellence always. And with that, we want to kind of live it every day that we come to work. And so that begins at orientation. And so when we hire new employees, we essentially go through a PowerPoint that talks about this is, the, this is what's expected of you from a behavior perspective. This is our value. These are our values. And each day when you interact with your coworkers, we want you to, inter, you know, to interact in, a, um, in an appropriate manner, to be respectful of your coworkers, to work well with other people. Um, and so from a, from a culture perspective, it actually starts the minute the employee gets in the door. But then for employees that have been here for some time, on an annual basis, we actually have our employees during the evaluation process, we actually have them sign the values, the organizational values to say, this is a reminder. And then again, as always, if somebody is deviating from expected behavior, then we counsel them. You mentioned you had a mentor early in your career when you were working mm. in the lab. Have you had other folks helping you out along the way? I have. Okay. Yeah. What did they do for you and how did, how did they help you? Yeah, I had, I have to say there's a woman named Darlene Stromstead. She was the CEO at um, Goodall Hospital. She um, not only was a great leader just in terms of kind of setting the stage for in this role, you know, um, this is what's expected from a community perspective. But she would role model that. You know, Darlene was one that was uh, part of the Chamber of Commerce. Um, she would, you know, she would lead events. She was the Go Red chairperson for the American Heart Association. So she was a great role model, but also one who actually set the expectation. She went to the management team and would say, listen, as managers and directors here at this organization, you are expected to do at least three community activities per year. It could be a parade, it could be helping at the YMCA, but the, you know, you were expected to do that and, and live those values, if you will. Above and beyond that, though, she was a member of the American College of Healthcare Executives. Mm. Mm -hmm. She was the region for the state of Maine several years ago, but then she actually became a governor for the American College of Healthcare Executives. And she pretty much lived and breathed their values, which was to mentor others. And so she was not only a great role model as a CEO, but also as a community citizen, and then role modeling the values of the American College of Healthcare Executives. So you watched what she did, you've tried to emulate that. Exactly, okay. yeah. So how do you, how do you go about developing leaders from within the organization. So if 
and, and how important is it to develop leaders internally as opposed to, say, reach out and bring in external leaders? Yeah. And again, in case they move on or, God forbid, something happened to them, we want to have a leader who could step in in their place. And so um, our directors do look for somebody in their department, and they mentor them as future leaders. Okay. We also, um, from a Department of Education perspective here at Southern Maine Healthcare, have ongoing leadership classes that we ask all of our leaders to take. And each year, the classes are different and they change. And last year, we had some that the titles were having difficult discussions with your employees. Another one was how to do behavior-based interviewing. And another one was constructive criticism. So those are just examples of some of the leadership training that folks here at Southern Maine Healthcare have to go through. We talked a minute ago about work-life balance and so forth, and, and I was talking about Sheryl Sandberg. Can you tell me a little about your experience being a woman in the various leadership roles and, and now as an executive? Do you believe your experience would have been different had you had the same positions as a man? And if so, how, how have you dealt with that? Has it changed over your career? Yeah. Well, oddly enough, I have to say that is not something that I think about. It's okay. just, no, I, it just isn't. In my role as a leader, I've been very fortunate that I have to say most of my experiences have been really quite positive. You know, I just figure if you exude positiveness, it comes back at you. And so, um, you know, the man-female thing just does not come up and hasn't come up much in my career at all. Okay. Let me jump now to talk. You mentioned your former CEO and, and mentor was very involved in ACHE. Mm. And you are actually the ACHE regent for Maine. Yes. We've had a number of guests on the podcast who are ACHE members, but can you briefly talk about ACHE and how did you become involved in it? So ACHE is the American College of Healthcare Executives. Its primary focus is on educating leaders. And once you become a member, after three years, you can actually sit for a certification exam to become a fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives. And it actually pushes you to a whole new level from a senior leadership, or I should just say from a leadership, healthcare leadership perspective throughout the United States. It's an, an honor and a privilege to be able to have that designation. And you are the regent. So what does the regent do in general, and specifically, what are you doing as the regent in Maine? Sure. So the regent for the state of Maine, I essentially represent the American College of Healthcare executives at the local level. And so uh, whatever is going on nationally, I actually let the folks in Maine know about what's going on nationally. I'm also, uh, based on being the regent, I'm also on the local chapter of the American College of Healthcare executives. It just so happens that the local chapter here is referred to as the Northern New England Healthcare Executives. And so what we do is essentially host educational sessions. We also provide networking opportunities. And then lastly, I send correspondence to, to members, let them know about scholarships that might be available or tuition waivers, waivers that type of thing. Okay. I work with a, again, with an undergraduate program in health management, and we're always trying to convince these young folks that they should join. Mm. What, what, what would you tell my undergrads why they should join now rather than waiting till they're advanced in their career? Sure. The American College of Healthcare Executives just offers so much. It's, it, you know, the lesson learned here is the sooner you can gain, garner the benefits from the American College, the sooner the better educational opportunities, networking opportunities, resume building opportunities, but also the college has a very comprehensive ethical standards policy. And so as you become a healthcare leader, you can refer to those ethical standards and actually they set the groundwork for all of the work that you do as a healthcare leader. And then lastly, mentoring is a big part of the values of the American College of Healthcare Executives. So as you meet members of the college, you can reach out to them for mentoring purposes. In fact, it is an encouraged. So there's a great benefit. Great. Yeah. So in conclusion, 
What advice would you have for students who are considering a career in healthcare administration? What training, jobs, experience should they be seeking out? All right. Um, healthcare management, it's actually tough work. And in large part, the reason why it's tough work is because most healthcare facilities are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But it also is extremely rewarding. And the reason why it's so rewarding is that you see patients at their most vulnerable times in life. You see patients uh, during the joy of birth, but you also see them during the sadness of death. Quality has become such a focus in healthcare, and every organization wants to provide the highest quality at every point along the patient's visit. Whether you're an undergraduate or a graduate student, being in healthcare management is it's, it's clearly a very, very rewarding field to go into. From a training perspective, again, as long as you have an undergraduate degree um, and you work towards, um, I would always say, in, if you're going to go into healthcare, you should probably move on to have a graduate degree. An um, MHA or, or it, MPH? Or it could be, recommend? generally it's one of three, a Master of Public Health uh, or Policy, an MBA, or Master of Healthcare. Health, a Master of Healthcare Administration. Master of Healthcare Administration. Generally, it's one of those three, um, okay. and not necessarily in any particular order, to be honest with you. But clearly, to get into a director's role now, and actually, even our physician practices, we're looking generally for someone with a master's degree. So I would say keep going, don't stop in the quest, because it's a great field to go into. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate all the great information you shared. You're welcome. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.